Apple, Google, and Spotify. This is not investment advice, and we are not investment advisors. Our guest today is Harvey Castro, a doctor, an emergency physician, um, a chat GPT healthcare expert, and the author of the recent book, Chat GPT and Healthcare, Unlocking the Potential of Patient Empowerment. He has several books on Amazon, ranging from AI and healthcare to entrepreneurship books. You can follow him at twitter.com slash Harvey Castro MD uh, and, and on LinkedIn dot uh, com slash IN slash Harvey Castro MD. Um, he has his AI and healthcare podcast, uh, all AI generated podcasts at the GPT podcast on Spotify. He cloned his voice. Uh, you can check that out. Um, that's, that's very interesting. Today's topic is, will AI replace your doctor? How GPT-3 and other artificial intelligence engines are disrupting care and what's next for doctors. First of all, here's the format of the show. We'll talk about the news for about 40 minutes. Then uh, we'll talk about today's topic for another 30 minutes or so, and then we'll start taking your questions as well. In order for you to do more than just watch, you need to register an account with callin.com. To register, you can visit callin.com um, or you can download the Callin social podcasting app in your app store. The Callin platform works similarly to Twitter Spaces for a modern social audio experience. Once you've registered, you can use the text chat or press the website's Callin button to join the discussion. So welcome, Harvey. Welcome to the show, and please introduce yourself to our audience. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Dr. Harvey Castro. I'm an ER doctor, board certified in emergency medicine, and a serial entrepreneur. have had over 30 successful businesses, all basically in healthcare. Uh, some of the IT stuff I've done in the past, I actually had over 30 iPhone apps in the past, uh, all in healthcare. So thanks for having me. Uh, great to meet you. So uh, the first thing we'll do is we've been talking a lot about um, the macro outlook, uh, and I'd love to get your uh, reaction to this, but the macro outlook matters because we used to have a very rich funding environment for startups, and that came to an end about six or seven quarters ago. Now we have a very lean funding environment for startups, uh, and uh, a lot of companies are, are looking for when they can raise their next round, uh, and so and that's determined by the macro outlook to a certain extent. So um, I'm sort of carrying a thesis that we're going to see a return to better times soon. So call it, uh, you know, this summer and fall. And the other thesis is that we're going to have to wait a year. We're going to have another four quarters, 12 months until things start looking up. I don't think we're ever going to return to the generosity of funding and the valuation levels that we had in 2021. That is... Uh, you know, that though, uh, because we're probably not going to see a return to nearly 0% risk-free interest rates. Um, but it is the case that uh, venture investors have money, they have dry powder, they have raised funds, uh, and that they're sort of sitting on the sidelines, they're sitting on the bleachers while young company leaders and CEOs are swimming in the pool. And the CEOs are wondering, when are these investors going to jump into the pool with us? So, um uh, the first thing I'm, I'm sort of looking for is, is that the Fed has, has repeatedly said that it stopped raising rates. And we saw a release of Fed minutes today that, that people have been reading. And it shows a continued, um, you know, uh, non-interest in further rate raises. So they want they have in the past, they raised rates uh, a great deal over the last six quarters to address inflation. 
And the latest release of minutes shows they continue to be less worried about inflation, probably not going to raise rates. And so that matters because uh, venture invest because if you raise rates, it, among other things, it causes the NASDAQ to pull in, it causes valuation levels to drop. And venture investors have been uh, waiting for us to find the bottom is what they're saying. For, so for rates to be raised and then to stop being raised and for valuation levels to pull in and then to stop pulling in so that VCs don't make commitments today and then see their, the, a fear of like the NASDAQ pulling in 30% or something a month or two or three months from now. So, uh, and then they would realize they made a mistake to have made that investment early. And so they're waiting. Uh, and so I'm, I'm making a call that I think the Fed has stopped raising rates and therefore we've seen sort of the, the bottom of valuation levels. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, and that means that w this is a catalyst that is reducing uncertainty about investment. And that's a good thing. So anyway, I don't know if you, if you have any thoughts, if you follow um, investor markets uh, and if you have any thoughts about the Fed, whether it needs to continue raising rates or whether it, it has, you know, it, it has stopped raising rates. So, uh, All valid points. Um, big picture, I think there's, uh, to your point, exactly, the fact that the feds, if, if we can get the feds to stop, then then that's one variable that we know it's a known fact. And now, as an investor, I'm not as worried, uh, like you said, borrowing money. I, I don't think we're out of the woods yet uh, for some verticals. And let me explain. I Obviously, I'm, I'm biased when it comes to AI. I feel like there's a lot of money going towards AI, and, and these valuations are high right now for them, despite what's going on. I think a lot of uh, investors are literally holding to to wait for the bottom so that they can get a better deal. So if they can hold off six, nine more months and let the bottom fall even further and come in, then uh, they might be able to get more uh, for less. And so I think th I think that's what's going on. I think another big player, especially here in the United States politics, obviously we have elections next year, and that is going to that uncertainty will. I think cause uh, kind of like a stagnation in a way that nothing will really move up or down. It just kind of go sideways for a while until uh, a winner is declared and we know the policies of that winner. We already know we're under Biden and we know what's given. And so depending on how the polls go and what, they, what the economy believes of Biden um, versus, let's say, if it was Trump, not that I'm getting political, it will determine a lot of things, which way the market would go, I per se. And so I personally think we're going to go sideways and we probably won't have a huge jump until after the elections. And so, so to give people an idea, we so um, if you compare to, say, the 2020 to 2021 era, which was a boom era in venture investing and digital health, um, investment in series CD crossover and IPO, that is down 95 to 100% right now. And part of the reason is that the IPO window is closed. So these deals are often are, are often done on an IPO basis, which is to say that they were putting in a Series C round and expect the company to IPO in two years at a certain valuation level. If the, if the IPO window is, is closed, then that deal is not getting done. Um, then there's Series A and B. This is down about 75% as compared to the boom level. Um, and then seed, this is only down about 25%. So a lot of seed deals are getting done. And people are actually noticing that a lot of those seed deals are getting done in tech and in digital health in AI. So uh, you happen to be a doctor focused on an area that's going through a boomlet during an overall uh, you know, time of conservatism, which is early stage uh, AI-backed startups in tech and digital health getting funding. Um, so um, another one is congressional debt limits. So that's uh, so, you know, uh, 
both parties are, are deadline experts um, and have not come to an agreement. And last I checked the markets, the NASDAQ was down 200 points because of fears that the parties were too far away, you know, one week away from the end of the month, um, from being able to reach a, 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 a comp compromise legislation to potentially uh, raise the debt limit. So do you have any thought? So if, if uh, Congress doesn't raise the debt limit, um, then barring, uh, you know, some kind of of amazing intervention, like the Treasury's talked about printing a trillion dollar platinum coin. I don't know if they're very, if they're serious about that, um, but uh, barring that, you could see a default, um, and a default, you know, could um, uh, you know cause stock markets to pull in, cause a recession, that sort of thing. Do, do you, so my, my own view is that I think the two parties are going to resolve this without a default. They're going to play a deadline artist game, which causes them to be in the the, the top story on the press for weeks. Uh, and I think they're going to come to a, a compromise uh, without without a default. But anyway, do you, do you have any thoughts on uh, on uh, this and what it, what it means for the innovation economy? Yeah, I, I'm 100% on board with you. I feel the same way. You know, as a politician, their life dependency depends on voters. And so, if you know, state A, X, Y, and Z, in this case, all of the states would be affected, and you know, with the news media, the first thing they're going to jump on is saying, hey, we, we started a recession because of you guys. And so they're not going to want that. Um, so I foresee, I agree with you. I think they're going to milk it for the news, take this to the last inning, and then they're going to execute and it's going to be a positive. And I, I think, you know, I'm, this is not financial advice, but if I was a betting man, I would uh, buy some stocks now because I think short term in a few weeks, this will be resolved, if not sooner. And then I see that day will be a boom. And then I would just be selling on that day. <laughs> you know, I'll add, you know, default is bad for almost everyone in the general economy. I think it's worse for the innovation economy. It's worse for young company leaders and CEOs and investors, because what young company leaders need is they need stability. They need, you know, balanced fiscal budgets. They need low interest rates and they need low inflation. And so uh, if we have an environment with unpredictable and possibly high inflation, unpredictable and possibly high rates, unpredictable and possibly defaulted fiscal budgets, that's just bad. It, it, so you, you need a, a sort of an alignment by venture uh, investors, young company, software vendor CEOs, and the big companies that buy from them. You need an alignment that they're thinking about the future. They're thinking about the future two years, five years, ten years from now. And when you have these unpredictable changes for the worse, it makes it harder to uh, plan for the future. That, that's why it it hurts um, the innovation economy more. I would say if if something bad happens there. So then the regional commercial banking crisis. We have this slow rolling regional commercial banking crisis that's in and out of the news. Um, and first, there was Silicon Valley Bank, which hit the tech sector, the, the, in, the, the innovation economy, the young tech companies really hard. There was an estimate that 50% of tech companies in Silicon Valley had a significant amount of their cash at Silicon Valley Bank. They were a bank that understood the tech sector, that would loan to them, even though they didn't have conventional collateral, um, that what went out of its way to help the tech sector and earn the, the, the business of the tech sector. And that meant that if suddenly those assets became illiquid and possibly a portion of them lost, that was a disaster for tech companies that had to make payroll every two weeks, uh, for example. Um, and so that was resolved by the Fed unexpectedly backstopping Silicon Valley Bank. That, that's not what was supposed to happen. Instead, it was supposed to go through a, an orderly liquidation process run by the state of California. 
but instead the Fed backstopped it. And now it's kind of emerged that, uh, you know, if you don't want to worry about uh, deposit risk, you have to put your money with one of the big four banks, like a Chase, for example, um, or you put your money in a money market account. But uh, the other regional banks have the same risk of Silicon Valley Bank, and we've seen their stocks pull in, and we've seen further uh, liquidation of regional banks. Um, and so, uh, and then um, uh, we may see the Fed step up and backstop more of these banks, which is not how it's supposed to happen. Um, it's supposed to be an orderly liquidation of banks that violate their regulatory levels, but the Fed may step up to do that. And that's a process that is ultimately inflationary because the Fed steps in to bank to, to to guarantee a bank's questionable assets with its own cash. And that means it's putting more cash into the economy and that's inflationary. And so here the Fed is trying to reduce inflation by raising rates, and yet it has to at the same time do inflationary things in order to backstop banks and avoid a regional banking crisis. So, you know, do, do I, th I think that a, a further, this is a slow burning crisis. Uh, it seems to be continuing. Um, I think that, uh, you know, this crisis is, doesn't seem to affect most startups have got their money out of uh, possibly dubious regional banks. They put their money in, uh, in the big banks. Um, it, it's very inconvenient. The big banks may not offer all the services to them that Silicon Valley Bank did. Um, but I don't think that startup deposits are in trouble. Startups are savvy, have protected themselves. But in general, if, if this is inflationary or if, it, or if there's a giant uh, crisis that needs a bailout, this is also bad for uh, the innovation economy. Any, any thoughts for you about the direction this is going? Yeah, this might be a horrible analogy, but I, I see it like the housing market uh, issue crash. You know, we, we, we're starting to see the the signs of these small banks. And, you know, as a serial entrepreneur, I, I've had multiple, multiple meetings with regional bankers and uh, credit unions to look for money and, and get money loans. So if those availability, yes, they're secured right now by the government, but then I, I'm more worried about the, the confidence from the consumer, meaning if we start losing confidence in the bank, that's going to be like the 1920s when people are running to the bank to grab their, their money out of the bank account, and then they're going to start changing them on the, the flow of cash, meaning they may start putting their stuff in you know, cryptocurrency or gold, or it's just going to move things. And I just worry that if that panic hits, it's going to be very disruptive. And, and that's my bigger worry. I think it's kind of like catching a cold. We're starting to see the symptoms. But if we don't jump on the and cure it now, then I think we're going to be in trouble later. So, um, uh, so good. That, that, that's a good run through of macro uh, issues. Any other um, thoughts on macro thoughts? No, um, I, I tend to be a, a positive person, and and I still think over the long haul, uh, my my picture is start buying now, continue and uh, law of averages, and then you know if if things go the way it should, I think after the elections or so forth, things will turn in a good way, and, and we all should do well. That's great. So now moving on to, to valuation. So the most recent um, SAS Capital Index valuation metrics uh, dated April 30th, 2023, uh, gives median valuation levels for SAS companies, public SAS companies of 6.5x of forward revenue. And that, that's for April. And that's as compared to the month before March of 7.1 times forward revenue. So I think it pulled in in April, uh, probably because of recession fears. Um, and that compares with a long-term historical median 
of about eight times. So we're down, we're down below the median of valuation levels um, historically for SaaS companies. Um, and um, uh, high growth SaaS uh, is trading at more like eight to 12 times forward revenue. Um, and this compares to the, the boom in 2021 when the median SaaS was trading at 16 times and high growth SaaS was trading at 30 to 35 times. So those valuation levels have really pulled in and, uh, and that, that creates a phenomenon among other things of digital health companies that got valued at these high valuations in 2021 when they maybe did a fundraising round. And now on paper, it's still at that high valuation level, but they can't get that today if they raise money again. Uh, and so they may be reluctant. They may need to belt tighten. They may be unwilling to accept the round they need to spend to, to win in the marketplace. They may be unwilling to sell the company at a lower valuation level. Um, so uh, that, that's a, a, a summary of valuation levels. And then the valuation environment in the NASDAQ and public markets is still risk off. So what risk on and risk off means in, with risk on, you know, risky, high growth earnings negative companies get a premium in their valuation, but in a risk off environment like we have right now, uh, they get a negative, uh, you know, uh, they get a discount, uh, you know, a, a, a negative premium uh, in the market and uh, profitable companies uh, get more of a, of, a, of a premium in the marketplace. And that's bad for uh, digital health companies because often the young, fast growing digital health companies are earnings negative and would benefit from a risk on environment. Um, at IPO window, um, another catalyst that we're looking for on this show is will the IPO window open up again? And so what needs to happen is you need a couple companies, a couple big companies to IPO and for their value to go up and stay up. And if that happens, then that means the, the IPO window has opened again and you'll see many VCs and banks are going to try to get the tech unicorns and the digital health unicorns out to go public. Uh, and so the ones we're watching, there's Kenview. Kenview was the consumer, is the consumer division of Johnson & Johnson. And that was, is a big company IPO'd on May 4th at $20 a share. And it traded up to about $26, $27 a share. And it's stayed there since. So that's good news. We're seeing pieces are starting to happen for the IPO window to open. And then there's Instacart has said it will go public. And ARM, the UK chip manufacturer, has said it would go public. Both of those would be really big. Um, and we're watching those. We're, we're looking to see if they think the market's favorable, if they go out, if they you know, are successful IPOs, stock price goes up and stays up. If that happens, I think we'll see the boards at a lot of tech companies and digital health companies will um, want to schedule their own IPOs. Um, so any, any thoughts on... Uh, you know, the evaluation environment, the risk environment, uh, the IPO window? Yeah, this is uh, a lot of things you hit on the SaaS model and just the evaluation portion. I, I'm a consultant for different companies around the world, and, and this has affected uh, many of them just to raise cash uh, just because their valuation has changed and therefore the their, down their literature, their talk, everything has changed. So, you know, instead of them looking at, like you were saying, a 7X, maybe it's a 5X. And, and as a return, a lot of investors are just kind of waiting, even though they have the powder, they're just kind of waiting to see. And and that's kind of why I made the comment earlier. I almost feel like some people are holding on purpose so that they can get a better valuation or lower valuation so they can get in so that when they, the tide turns, then they've made even more. Um 
when it comes to this IPO, I I, I love uh, what you mentioned with the, this can view. Um, from what I understand, it's that they, they took some Johnson Johnson products, put them into a company and sold it. And I thought, oh my God, brilliant. Because this is, a, again, a, another bad analogy, but I see it as like a day trading where you're buying up and down. They did the same thing. They know they have a winner. They gave a company overnight uh, money. And then I think the parts are worth more than a whole. And so now, yes, Johnson Johnson may quote unquote taken a hit, but they own 91% of that company. And so I think it's a, a good play. And the fact that it's going up, I think they they bet well. And I think they did well. So I'm, I'm curious if this uh, will eventually spawn different products now doing the same thing where, you know, maybe we hear another big company selling part of their, their, their basket of goods. Um, yeah, as far yeah. as, go ahead. Oh, and no, no, has, no, what, what has Tylenol and Band-Aids in it, but interestingly, it doesn't include on-patent drugs and medical devices. And so clearly J&J is saying our, our future lies with, with the on-patent you know, drugs and medical devices, and we're taking these other you know, loved consumer brands uh, and, and we're, we're spinning them out. And so you know, in, in the future, you'd expect that would be a cash cow business, Kenview, whereas um, you know, new uh, on patent drugs and medical devices are risky, but when they win, uh, you have very, a very high margin, high growth business. Yeah, and and just to elaborate a little bit on that, uh, you're right. the The risk of Tylenol is do done. I don't know many people know this, but doctors don't know how Tylenol works. We think we know, but we we still don't know. So it's kind of interesting little tidbit. The other thing that's in that basket, I, I forget if it's nicotine or ni something with nicotine patches, something along those lines. It's also as part of that. So I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how we move forward and what else happens. So and. Now, you know, one of the questions here is when will the funding environment get better? When will, when will v so VCs are sitting on the bleachers while CEOs are swimming in the pool? When will the VCs jump in? Why are lead, lead investors not leading and when will they start to lead again? So I was, I was talking with some VCs and I was saying, look, you know, I talked to you a year ago and you said that you were waiting for the Fed to stop raising rates. The Fed was raising rates rapidly at that time. You were saying, said you're, you, you were looking for the Fed to stop raising rates. Preliminarily, it looks like they have stopped raising rates. That means that on a valuation basis, we found the bottom uh, of valuation. So does that mean you're going to start investing again soon? You're going to make, and the way funds work is that if that uh, funds have a life cycle, and if you have not been active investing for two years, you have to put the, the full amount of money to work over the remaining four or six years that are left in your fund's life cycle. So you'd expect investors to start investing and uh, to make up for lost time, to invest at a higher rate uh, than they did before. And what, I, what I'm hearing is investors still not uh, eager, VCs still not eager to start making investments, even though it looks like the Fed has stopped raising rates. And they're, you know, that, that basically, um, you know, they're still, uh, you know, questioning their own theses about, about what kind of digital health companies are going to be successful in the marketplace and what kind they're going to be able to invest in and exit at a high return uh, on their investment in the future. Um, and they also are confronting multiple messes. They're confronting problems of uh, portfolio companies that need more of the dry powder that the VCs have set aside for new investments, um, or they're discovering syndicates behind some of their portfolio companies are weak with some investors not being able to re-up. And so they'll have to allocate more of their dry powder to their existing portfolio. So VCs still seeing, seeing a mess that they have to clean up um, 
and so I'm still following this issue closely of, of when, and, and I personally think what's, what's going to happen is some of the more aggressive VC funds like an Andres and Horowitz or whatever are going to start, are going to start aggressively investing. This is going to create a, sort of an emotional FOMO situation among other VCs. And that's what's going to cause them all to jump in at the same time. So we just, and, and what could be the spark for that is AI and healthcare could be the spark for that. So, but I'm, I'm, I continue to sort of watch that carefully and report on that. Harvey, you have any thoughts about um, when lead investors are going to start leading again? You know, um, I think it's coming soon and I think it, it's kind of cyclical, you know, back then we were talking about the dot-com. Now we're talking about AI, you know, a couple of years ago it was big on crypto and, and it's these cycles uh, that are creating FOMO. And, and I, I personally am biased again. I, I think on some things we won't hear much investments, but on others in AI particularly, we'll see more. Now, what's going to be interesting is there's so many different companies coming out that which AI is the one that's going to lead. Um, what I find very, very interesting, and I, I would like to encourage everybody to keep an eye out for this, especially in healthcare, I feel like Microsoft is playing their cards well. What I mean by that is they have obviously partnership with OpenAI. They have Azuri uh, secure server for healthcare for HIPAA compliance. And I wouldn't be surprised if either A, they start buying the little guys or uh, just start creating their own uh, different plugins, different platforms um, to be that leader in healthcare. That's great. So now we move on to the, to the news section of our show. Um, the, the uh, sort of news stories. And here, um, for our audience, I'd like to ask, you know, you're, you're welcome to throw up some news stories in the chat room and we'll react to them. Uh, and so, you know, any, any, if you want our view on news stories that you've seen. So the first story I'll call out here is um, uh, that, uh, so um, a new digital health company called LifeForce, um, which is a personal health optimization telehealth company, announced this week it raised a $12 million Series A. So that's great. I mean, the news has, good news has been slow in digital health for, for six quarters. Um, and there's, there hasn't been a lot of fundraising. And there's been more layoffs announced than successes. Um, so here's a, a success. Um, the CEO is Dougal Bain Kim. Uh, the round was led by M13's Courtney Room. Um, and the company is also backed by celebrities, Serena Williams and Tony Robbins. Uh, so here, looking at this, this is very interesting. This is in a, a you know, personal health, health optimization. That's a really intriguing, probably consumer driven uh, space for this. Um, there's, uh, you know, there's also inside tracker is in the same space. This is a really intriguing area. I'd say that the level of investor interest is moderate right now, not extremely high in this area, but I think, I think the sector has a lot of promise for the future. Um, I'll, I'll mention though, you know, um, this is not a, a sort of a mainstream uh, round in the sense that you're usually looking for mainstream prominent investors, a syndicate of leading investors. Um, and instead, this is, you know, this is more in a, a kind of a niche area and M13 is not a, not a mainstream digital health fund. Uh, and so once again, we're seeing rounds being raised, but they're not, they're not, you know, we're looking for a lot of mainstream rounds all happening uh, rapidly, and we're still not seeing that. We're seeing sort of an unusual round of the fact that it's backed by celebrities. That's pretty uncommon for digital health companies as well. Um, so this is, I, I'm not seeing, I, I like the niche, but uh, I'm not seeing this as heralding a return to active investing by investors. 
So Harvey, any thoughts on the significance of the life force deal? You know, I, I find it interesting. I think Tony Robbins and Serena Williams, I hear their names in different companies and I've seen them specifically in healthcare. Um, and I've met with Tony Robbins on occasion and talked to him about some things. And I feel like he's, I, I don't know, this is now me speculating. I feel like it's his name and his fame that he figures, well, if I invest and I get that PR going, then it, the company automatically is worth more. And and for whatever reason, he, he really do, does enjoy healthcare. So I, I, I see this movement coming more and more uh, common. You'll start seeing celebrity names and, and just from that fact that they can put their hands on a company and, and have that much social media presence to increase uh, value, literally, I think, overnight. That's great. And then other news, a company called Femtech Health, F-E-M-T-E-C Health, um, has announced it's shutting down uh, and because it has run out of money. Um, so here, you know, this is part of a continuing trend we've seen over the past uh, six plus quarters, which is um, companies that may have been able to have raised a round of funding in 2021 now can no longer raise a round of funding. Uh, and so they're, uh, they're belt tightening, they're trying to make it through, um, uh, but eventually some of them are going to run out of uh, run out of money. And this, this gets to a further issue that, um, you know, back two, three years ago, was a different environment with with nearly zero percent risk free interest rate. Uh, a lot of things, a lot of speculative things, got funded um, that that probably wouldn't have gotten funded in a five percent risk free interest rate environment like like we have today, uh, and therefore can't get a next round of funding in today's environment. And so, unfortunately, I think this is similar to a lot of other companies we've seen that have begun to shut down. And also, unfortunately, I think I think that of the you know, there's 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 several hundred digital health companies out there, many of whom raised rounds in the, the height of the boom, 2020 to 2021. And I think we're going to see a lot of them. They're going to belt tighten, but then they won't be able to raise money and their their revenue model will probably be a little squishy, um, which was that was good enough um, when they raised money. But uh, I think we're going to see more companies announcing cutbacks and shutdowns or sale of assets at a, at a low uh, price. Um, so I think this is symbolic of, of the time that we're in. Um, and I also, there's over 30 companies in the femtech sector, and, I, 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 and I've, I've studied the femtech sector over time, and I had not heard of femtech health. Um, uh, uh, and so, uh, uh, but uh, anyway, uh, Harvey, uh, any thoughts on the meaning of femtech health uh, shutting down? Yeah, you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily the concept that was bad. And I'm not. I'm just generalizing when I make this statement. I think it. I think sometimes being overly valued too high, uh, I think, can be a problem because then eventually you need to show how much money you're going to make and and make that investment. Uh, so if I invest in company X and they report Y, and then all of a sudden they can't live up to that expectation, and I valued them so high then they either come up with a new idea or more services. And then if they can't, then I'm not going to fund them anymore. And I think that's what's happening. Uh, they played, a, they, I'm not saying they, fem, Femtech in particular, I'm saying in general, some of these companies stayed a big game. And then l- later when you start really digging into the financials and they start missing quarters or start missing some of those projections and they were valued to so high, 
the multiple is so much more on the way down. <laughs> and so as a result, uh, funding stops and a lot of these companies will stop. So I, I encourage people to, if they are having a, a company, value it correctly um, and make sure you're meeting, meeting to expectations. It's always better to go above expectations and then be valued more then than to do it the other way ahead of time before you've improved yourself. Yeah, uh, I, think we, I think we're going to see a lot of that of companies that, uh, you know, uh, perhaps uh, were overvalued and, and touted a very speculative growth story um, in their last round. And they're, they're having this, this reckoning that we're seeing play out, unfortunately. Um, so next is any, any AI news that struck you as being especially important in the last few weeks. So the reason we're all talking about AI right now is that about six months ago, um, OpenAI, the company, released its its you know GPT 3.0 and 3.5 and chat GPT and that sort of thing and people were just amazed um, that this was like a it was an answer engine that was better than the search engines out there it seemed to be able to tell stories and and be creative uh, and people hadn't really ever seen this before not in Apple's Siri not in search engines not in other forms of AI that we'd seen before um, and so that's why we're all talking about AI right now is because of that company OpenAI and what they released. But since then, um, I, what, are, are there any stories that you think are the most important stories for AI that have happened uh, in, the, in the last six months since we've all been paying attention? Yeah, this is a tough one. I mean, I, I call it the AI wars whenever I blog about this kind of stuff. And, you know, we all know who Microsoft and OpenAI is. Um, but prior to that, the big number was Google. And so Google has barred. And when Bard came, made their debut, uh, people were just astonished that it wasn't as good as ChatGPT. And so, ironically, their stock just plummeted. Um, I think it was over 10, 15% after their demo. And so, um, moving forward, now there's multiple players out there um, that are creating their own, and it's a spinoff of Google prior owners and whatnot. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens with the space. I think to your point, you're right. Um, it's kind of like a new toy. Apple wasn't showing it, nobody was showing it, but Google Google had been uh, had this technology, and they actually invented uh, the principles of what OpenAI uses. And ironically, OpenAI is the one who released it first to the public. And because the public got to play with it, uh, I mean, uh, the numbers are unreal. I, I think it was like over 100 million people in the first 60 days that subscribed to it or were using it rather. And and like the latest in the news uh, that Microsoft is doing a good job is. They're putting it into all their search engines, their products. The one that I'm personally excited that I can't wait to play with is when they add it to Windows because at that point, it's going to be – I know people are going to be like, oh, big brother, I don't want it. But I see it a little differently in that you'll have an AI on your desktop. And let's say this conversation that we're having, say I want to index something six months from now, I can say, okay – on May the 24th, I, I, or not even the day, I, I, I was here on this podcast, what did I talk about? And it'll summarize it, and it'll take it to a Word, and then if I don't want it on Word, it'll take it to PowerPoint, and then if I want it to go on Teams, it will. And so this that inner ability to just type and say, hey, I, I'm doing a research project, and I know I talked about this, and it can index it, it's going to be unreal. And so the power of what we'll be able to do, it's going to be unreal. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm, I'm personally stoked about the future. Great. Um, so next, we'll talk about some upcoming conferences. So for our audience, feel free to throw out a news story you'd like us to react to or a conference. If you're thinking of going to a business conference in the near future, um, you can uh, you know, ask us to review it and, and we'll do a little review here. So um, 
First, I'll mention coming right up, Bio is happening June 5th to 8th in Boston, tickets $3,500. Um, and should the young digital health leader uh, attend this conference? Uh, well, so my answer is if you, if you sell into the life science community, then it's worth attending. Uh, so uh, first of all, what does that mean? It means you sell software into the, like, the pharma commercial budget or into the pharma clinical budget or the pharma infrastructure budget. Um, or maybe you have a digital product that, uh, ha that is uh, meant to be prescribed by prescribers uh, and paid for by payers, for example, like a digital therapeutic or digital diagnostic. So this is a good conference to go to. And why would you go? Well, first of all, 95 plus percent of the people who are going to this conference are there for the molecules, not for the software. So the, the, the disadvantage of this conference is you have to find the, the other people who are interested in software as, uh, and those are the people that you want to meet with. So who would that be? So there's, there's VCs interested in, in um, pharma tech, for example, uh, and, and VCs interested in digital diagnostics. Uh, there's also pharma corporate VCs, many of whom do invest in software. There's also pharma innovation executives uh, and pharma brand managers and pharma clinical managers. Uh, and so those are the kinds of people who would buy your software product or who would invest in your software company who are there. Um, there's a startup stadium at Bio. I would participate in that. There's a business forum one-on-one -on -one partnering uh, a tool. I would I would buy and participate in that. Um, so those are um, that, that that's my take on uh, digital health leaders going to Bio in Boston uh, June fifth to eighth. Uh, any thoughts, uh, Harvey? Yeah, I, I love uh, conferences. I feel like big picture, I get, you get to meet with other amazing minds and and just people that will challenge you and teach you. So I'm I'm a big believer in conferences so especially now that we're not in lockdown uh the other part of it is we often don't get to meet people we zoom we do tele you know teledoc stuff like that but we don't get to meet person person so i, I highly encourage everybody to to attend these conferences just to to meet that, that's great and then also we have the digital healthcare innovation summit june 6th to 7th in boston directly conflicting with bio also in boston uh, this year, it's chaired by Flair and Humana are, are some of the co-chairs here. Tickets are $1,500. Um, uh, and so I, I recommend this conference highly for digital health uh, leaders. So this focuses on the healthcare side, uh, the, the care side of healthcare, payers, providers, tech for payers and providers and employers. Um, and it, and it's, it's less so on the life science uh, and FDA risk side, which is what bio is about. Um, and I think you'll see here, the reason to go here is, is to meet a lot of investors all on the same trip. And I think you'll see here very strong, heavy representation of East Coast venture funds in digital health will be attending this conference. Uh, and you can just write them, write to VCs who are based in Boston, New York, um, and say, let's meet. Uh, and so this is, this, is, this is good from a time efficiency standpoint. Uh, and it's also good to meet VCs you wouldn't otherwise be able to meet um, at that conference. Uh, and so uh, it's a small conference. Uh, it's, it's based out of uh, Back Bay. Um, I, I've been going to this conference for years, and I actually partnered with this conference this year and got a discount code for my audience. So uh, for the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit in Boston, June 6th to 7th, um, there's a, um, a discount code, Investor Talk 10, for a 10% discount off of ticket prices. Um, so uh, so Harvey, any, any conferences that you're going to, or that you like and are recommending people go to? Yeah. Um, I was, uh, 
lucky enough to uh, be invited to a conference called AI Med. Um, it's artificial intelligence and medicine, and they're expecting, I want to say, over 1,500 uh, participants. So I'm going to be on the panel. Um, I've never been, but I'm honored to be part of the panel. I'm excited because there'll be all these AI leaders in healthcare and be able to share notes and see what else is doing. And I, I, I'm, I love vendors in general, so I always like making sure I hit uh, make a round on all the vendors just to see what what the next technology is. Um, and so, yeah, and then the, after that, um, I'm going to be invited to be the HIMSS keynote speaker in uh, Portugal uh, on June the 4th through the 7th. And so that'll be another interesting um, conference. You know, I, I, I love the United States. I love being here, but I, I love how different laws affect uh, innovation to some degree. And so being in Europe, I'm going to be excited just to see different perspectives, uh, different angles. And, you know, it's the same technology, but then with a different spin based on their local laws or just the adaptability of technology in different populations based on culture. So uh, I'm really stoked about these next two conferences coming up. That's great. And I see that um, that the AI Med conference is in San Diego um, and that it's also seems to be affiliated with Chime as well. And Chime is a is uh, a group of people on the hospital side of um, uh, of a digital health, so healthcare information management, uh, and that th you know that that's a pretty good um, a pretty good group to affiliate with in terms of, of having a, a good agenda for the conference. So that, that's great. Um, so uh, let's see. So then the next one is is personal notices. So here we talk about things we're doing that people could join, participate in or whatever. My own personal notice is that, um, uh, is that um, uh, next week I have May 31st is my next show, uh, which is going to be uh, David Duncan, uh, who's an expert on longevity. And we're going to be talking about the future of longevity tech. Um, I'm also hosting a drinks night in Boston for people who are in town for bio or for the Digital Health Innovation Summit. That's Monday, June 5th at 530. Um, you can sign up for both of these events uh, on my Eventbrite page, stephenwardell.eventbrite.com. Come to the show next week for a talk by, Dave, by the famous journalist David Duncan about the future of longevity tech and also to the drinks night on Monday, June 5th, especially if you're visiting Boston for bio or for the Digital Health Innovation Summit. Also be at the Digital Health Innovation Summit uh, in June and happy to connect with people who are there. Um, and uh, so th those are my personal notices. Harvey, any, any personal notices from you? No, um, I mean, uh, big picture for me is just uh, just be, I'm a, obviously I'm an ER doctor, I'm a lifetime learner, but that doesn't apply just to doctors. I, I'm gonna encourage everybody out there, the fact that you're here listening, that means you're learning and you're great, growing yourself. So keep doing that and keep growing. So keep attending these uh, great talks. That's great. So now, now we'll move on to the topic of our show, Will AI Replace Your Doctor? How GPT-3 and other artificial intelligence engines are disrupting care and what's next for doctor. So why don't we start with just the, the beginning of this for you. You wrote the book about this, literally. Um, how did you encounter GPT-3 um, as a practicing doctor? And what made you want to write a book about it? And maybe what is, what is the most powerful use case you've seen for generative AI like ChatGPT? Yeah, good question. So I'd like giving a quick background. Um, 
when the first iPhone came out, I had just graduated residency-ish, and um, I was coding a patient in the emergency room, told the nurse, hey, we need this IV drip, and I was shocked when she got a textbook out and started going through it, and by the time she got the dose and gave it, it took forever in my mind, and I thought, man, there's got to be a better way, so I, I literally taught myself how to write apps, and I created my first app called IV Meds, and it ended up being in the top 10 in the world. And and moving forward, I just thought, man, if you have IT and, and, and create healthcare and you combine it and you're at that time, no one else was really in the forefront of both, then you could create something special and help patients, which was my main goal. And so fast forward, uh, late November, I'm playing with ChatGPT and I happened to come across it and I just thought, man, this is the next best thing. And so uh, literally, I know, I know my wife thought I was crazy. I was writing a book in the month of December and, and she was like, what are you doing? And I would explain it. And she's like, I don't get it, but she just let me be. But fast forward, here I am. I write the book and I start just playing with it. And I thought, let me be an advocate to tell doctors how to use it and tell patients how to do it. And we'll go over it. But to your question, how, how can we best use it today? I think it's right now the easiest and, and to go to market the quickest would be just using it for education. Um, and we'll go into why we can't do other things. And obvious one is hallucination in healthcare. Um, as a patient, if you do it and you self-diagnose and you get your harm, harming yourself or possibly die, then obviously that's, that's not going to happen. So right now I see it more on the doctor side, being able to use it. And then what I call give it its vetting, give it its blessings. Uh, I often talk about if I'm going to give its blessings, I, I could bless something from ChatGPT that's emergency medicine, but I really have no business in, in blessing some part of medicine that's outside of my specialty because of the hallucination. Just the fact that I'm a doctor only means that I can I understand medicine, but that doesn't mean that I've practiced medicine in that field. And therefore, if ChatGPT says something, I, I look at it and it sounds medically sound, I may tell somebody erroneously, yeah, that, that works, that's correct. And in reality, you talk to a specialist in that field that does maybe that particular surgery, for example, and they look at the same thing and they're like, dude, this is not what we do in, in practice. And so um, how to use it correctly or what, what I see today would be the best. I, I love giving this quick example, and it's the following. A hospital out of England took the best of both worlds, of ChatGPT and Dolly. And what they did was pretty simple and straightforward. Um, there was a child that had asthma, just first-time diagnosis. They took their hospital discharge instructions, plugged it into ChatGPT and said, hey, change this and pretend I'm a five-year-old and change the discharge instructions. And so it made it a really simple language to understand from a fifth grade, from a five-year-old level. But the part that makes me excited is they paired that with Dolly, is uh, basically typing the words and it created, and they created a cartoon, um, a coloring book, and then they put it all together, and then they handed it to the patient and say, okay, here it is. And I thought, man, this is healthcare. Now that child you know, try talking to a five-year-old for more than 30 seconds, you know, they're gone. But here's a coloring book, a way you can interact with the patient, teach the patient. Now the parents can get involved and they can learn. And now the child, believe it or not, at age five can understand, you know, why it's so important to take their medicine and what are the, some, some of the signs for asthma and why they need to jump on it sooner than later. And so, you know, I, I think the future is bright. Uh, I think the, the rate limiting step right now is HIPAA and privacy, and I respect that. But I think uh, already big companies are looking at how to, how to address those issues and hallucinations and privacy so that we can have this product sooner than later. So um, uh, AI is not new. 
um, and we've seen different kinds of AI. I, I'm reminded that uh, Microsoft Spellcheck and Microsoft Clippy are both AI, and, and those date from 20 and like 30 years ago. Uh, so AI is not new, um, but different ki different kinds of AI that are very different seem to have different uses in healthcare. Um, so to, to pick just two examples, um, one is computer vision AI, totally different than large language model AI. Um, and it has been heralded for about 10 years now for very interesting capabilities. So to give you an idea, you're probably familiar with this, but if a pathologist were looking at slides made of, uh, of tissue from a patient, uh, the pathologist might look at five or 10 slides and might try to look at 100 plus cells per slide. And maybe they're looking for cancerous cells and then they will make a report based on this. Um, but uh, a computer vision AI um, could look at a thousand slides and they could look at 500 cells per slide, for example. And that would be too tiring and impractical for a human doctor to do. And as a result, you could start getting um, uh, AI diagnostic results. And then the, the AI agent can write the report and, and write a, a report that reads like it was written by a human for other human consumption, uh, including you know uh, key key images embedded in the report to show exactly what it's talking about, and then it becomes the doctor's role becomes bringing their responsibility and medical knowledge to bear and reading the report and agreeing or disagreeing with the report. And these reports are now achieving levels of accuracy higher than human doctors are achieving. So a human doctor might have a 97% accuracy rate. And then an AI agent that uh, looks at more uh, cells on pathology slides, um, you know, might have a 99% uh, accuracy rating. So that's, that's computer vision. And then we've also seen uh, you know, a, a lot of excitement and interest in large language model AI like ChatGPT3. Um, although that seems to be more nuanced and complicated because you can, it can, because it can also be wrong, which is a problem in medicine. Um, uh, and so any other kinds of AI and where they're finding a home in medicine that you could help us uh, think about? Yeah, so I, I look at AI in medicine as it's been able to infiltrate different sectors of medicine faster than others. You eloquently mentioned uh, the visual computer vision portion. If you think about it, radiology already has been digitized. You know, they, they take an x-ray or CT, but it's all digital. And so that digital information already exists as opposed to, um, yeah, and then the other one is pathology. They, they, you can digitize those slides to make it where a computer can read it. And so the adaptability of the, of AI in different sectors have predominantly been in radiology, pathology. But when you look at like pediatrics and other primary care, it's, 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 it's a little bit tougher because now you're looking at the electronic medical record. And, and obviously a lot of that information has uh, privacy issues because it has your name and whatnot. So now they're having to figure out how can we use this data um, and still create uh, value. And so to your point, um, yes, um, creating uh, note-taking, medical reasoning, knowledge, um, you can do it. But the big problem is uh, hallucination because as a doctor, if it gives you the wrong information. And so I'm a big advocate of, yes, ChatGPT was not meant for healthcare. It's being used in healthcare. But the true 
uh, large language model, the replacement of ChatGPT in healthcare is probably going to be something like BioGPT. And, and not to jump into too much details, but the skinny is think of our large language model that is only used with all medical textbooks, journals, research, and there's nothing else to do with anything other than medicine. And so the chances of it hallucinating, it may hallucinate an, an old article or something along that, but it's always using the crux, which is just medicine. So in theory, it should do less. Now, uh, one of the things, reasons why ChatGPT is so successful is because it used human reinforced learning. And when you use that model of human being teaching a model, then uh, in this particular case, if you have a doctor training the AI, now you'll be able to create a better product. And I think that's where we're headed. And I honestly think it's not that far away. I, I think within a year, we'll have a strong AI model that will be used in healthcare. Now, will doctors use it? That's another story. <laughs> So that, that's very interesting. And so just for our audience, um, there's an interesting story here about you know, how this young, small company, OpenAI, it apparently, it hasn't been fully you know, forthcoming about this topic, but it apparently scraped the web um, like Google would scrape the web for its search engine uh, for information, put that into a database. Um, and then it has this large language model AI engine that it runs against that database. Uh, in order to have knowledge, and then it uses a, a it, it, the way that the AI that um, that uh, ChatGPT works is that it simply based on all of the data of um, of articles and web pages and other information that it has, uh, it, it you ask it a question, it understands the question, then it answers you using a probability engine that tries to predict uh, based on what it thinks it knows, um, the next right word in the sentence, uh, one word after another until it's answered your question. And so what it says is in part based off of what it has ingested. Uh, and uh, a wrinkle to this is that, um, uh, you know, that the, the entrepreneur Elon Musk was a co-founder of OpenAI um, and he has since exited participation in OpenAI and become a critic of the way that OpenAI has been managed. Among other things, OpenAI has become closed and Elon Musk didn't want it to become closed. Um, and so he's he, he may now start a new AI effort that will be the, the open vision that OpenAI was originally supposed to be. Mm -hmm. But the prior owners of Twitter had allowed OpenAI to, uh, to crawl Twitter. And so OpenAI knew what was in Twitter. And one of Elon Musk's actions since he took over Twitter was to shut that off. Um, so, uh, and I don't know whether that means that they're barred from using that Twitter database that they had, uh, but they can't, uh, they can't continue to crawl Twitter and they're not allowed to. And so that, that's an example of a, a public database owned by Twitter that a search engine could possibly um, crawl, but they don't uh, because in general, Twitter doesn't want to be crawled by search engines other than its own. Um, and then an AI agent could crawl it as well. And uh, it could, and their data could be in the large language models database or may not be in the large language models database. And so I think this means that we're going to see there's certain healthcare company, uh, healthcare data companies like UpToDate, which provides education for doctors. And all of a sudden, and they have they have editors and they write um, review pieces where they take a, a controversial medical topic and they summarize the research and try to take a side uh, in terms of best practices for doctors. 
Um, and so all of a sudden, if, if, you're, if, you're, if you have competing AI agents, Bard versus, um, you know, versus chat GPT, uh, the ability to say that you have, you know, read and digested up to date becomes very valuable, those, those sources. And so you may see, I don't think we've seen this yet, but you may see large language model generative AI um, that is claiming to use the very best databases. Uh, and so you have medical publishers of original articles and you have more summary writers like UpToDate um, that will be trying to sell their content for top dollar. They may be Switzerland and be neutral and sell it to everybody. They may offer exclusive deals, try to get more that way. Um, so is it, you know, is that, do we need that in, you know, as a doctor, do you think we need that in medicine before doctors can trust, uh, you know, these BARD and, and chat GPT just to pick two? Yeah, I think, uh, I love the word trust. I actually wrote about it today about trust in AI. And, and at the end of the day, that's fundamental. And that's why I was jokingly say you can have these models, but it'd be another reason if the doc, another, it'll be another push to have the doctors use it because they have to trust it. You know, there's so much on the line here. It's not like you make a mistake and somebody loses money. No, somebody can die. <laughs> and so this is a big factor in healthcare and healthcare in general is very conservative. Um, and so I think the future is going to be, it needs to be brand recognition, but it needs to be backed by doctors. Um, I, that's another reason why I'm such a big advocate on ChatGPT and healthcare. I'll just rephrase and say AI and healthcare because I want doctors to be in the forefront. I want doctors to be the ones leading and showing and helping because at the end of the day, our focus is different. We're not focused on dollars. We're focused on the patient and what can we do best for that patient. Whereas nothing against corporations, but Microsoft is looking at the bottom line and their shareholders that they have to talk to and, and their angle is going to be a little different. Um, as far as the database, this is an interesting point that you just made. You know, there's a lots of talk that they're actually looking to index uh, YouTube because there's so much information, people giving talks on YouTube, that if they can take that information from YouTube, then they can update their databases. Um, they are talking about that they literally may run out of data, which is kind of crazy. Like, how do you run out of data? You know, the Internet feels like it's infinity, but in reality, it's not because they can go through all that information, which just blows my mind. And so moving forward, I, I, I joke and tell people I feel like we're at the Napster days and I'm dating myself here because, you know, back then you could download music and it was illegal and this is what's going on. And I feel like fast forward, I wouldn't be surprised if a bunch of book companies get together and create their own large language model or something along the lines where they get in bed with chat GPT and say, okay, we'll give up the rights to this, but we want a commission for every time this information is indexed or used into the model. And, and I, I know people will fight it, but that's where we're headed. And I'll put a little note here for what's the greater good. If we could take all the knowledge in the world and put it together, I know this sounds dangerous, but put it together in one database, but to create the superhuman doctor to help, then wouldn't it help patients? Wouldn't it advance medicine? Wouldn't it help us make better medications for our patients and maybe prevent some diseases and maybe extend life and better quality of life? You know, pros versus that, cons, yeah, it's a tough one. But, but if you could ideally create it, why not do something to help humanity? That, that's great. And so now for our audience, uh, you know, now, now's a great time. If you guys have questions for Harvey and me, um, feel free to type your question in the room chat. Um, or um, you can also uh, seek, you know, raise your hand to be in the caller queue as well. And we'll turn to those questions in just a moment. Um, so Harvey, by the way, I've heard some people comment on something happening right now that is a kind of a 
regulatory arbitrage or a liability arbitrage. And you mentioned Napster. And of course, Napster could be this small daring company that made digital music available free to everyone. Um, and if they were sued, which they ultimately were sued, um, they didn't have a hundred billion dollar balance sheet. They were just this small startup. Uh, that, uh, and so someone could dare and act and, and tread on, on property rights that are not always well-defined. Um, and the worst that would happen is a startup company would get squashed, but it wouldn't be IBM losing, you know, losing billions in liability or whatever. Something similar is happening with, um, with uh, OpenAI. Here you have a, small, a, a relatively small startup company. It's not Google, it's not Microsoft. And it went out and said, we think our interpretation of the right to use this information on the web is that we can crawl the web, save this stuff and use it uh, for AI purposes. Uh, and then they came out with their um, product and they actually charge for it. So it's now a commercial product. That means that someone who says, I think that you crawled my website and and, you know, and you know, some, maybe Reddit says, I think you crawled Reddit and took some of this information from Reddit. Just to pick an example, um, they could try to, to sue, but they only have OpenAI, um, which I think is a nonprofit company. At least it's a, originally a nonprofit structure with, I think, a for-profit subsidiary. Um, they can go after OpenAI, um, but they but they but uh, OpenAI can take risks that a big company couldn't take. Um, uh, and um, uh, and so but then OpenAI has been so successful that it has prompted, um, you know, uh, Google with its BARD uh, and, you know, to uh, to also go out in public and, and make commercial use of this data that it has that it has collected off of the Web. So we'll see, um, you know, how how the the IP rights of that data play out. We, we may want to see. You know, people who own this data say, hey, if you're making money off of it for your AI engine, then I want to get paid every time you make money off of it or whatever. And that, that and we still don't know how that's going to play out in the courts. Um, so I, I saw a summary of um, large language model generative AI, and it said that, that they're good for three things. They're good for medical knowledge, medical note taking and medical reasoning. Um, and of course, that there could be flaws with that. We don't necessarily want to take the doctor out of the loop uh, with that. But is that about right? Do you think those are the uses of a large language model for those three cases? Or do you see other cases? Um, uh, yeah, for specifically for ChatGPT, there's multiple other things. But I think if you had to put them in categories, I think all those other ideas would probably fall into one of those three. I think medical knowledge. Um, it's a slippery slope because, you know, if I don't know something, let me jump on ChatGPT. But then if it's lying to me or hallucinating to me, then I don't know that I don't know that it's incorrect. <laughs> and so it becomes an issue. But but assuming that, let's just say I'm really versed in ER and, and it comes up and I don't quite understand it or I don't believe it. I think the key is to be cognizant, to be understanding that, hey, that happens to number one, I need to check my references and then believe that the references that are coming my way may not match to what I'm asking and to verify the reference. And then what's crazy is sometimes the author doesn't match the, the, the subject of the article that it claims to have had. And then if you look it up, that whole thing doesn't even match the article that is trying to uh, reinforce that it told you. As far as note taking, I think that's a powerful one because the power of, you know, as if, 
if we can get through it, I know Epic has announced that OpenAI, Microsoft, and Epic are all working towards this already for the electronic medical record. But I think on the note-taking part, it'd be amazing to be able to type in and say, okay, let me see the latest re MRI reports for my patient, and it can just go back and just give me the uh, its assessment plan. So it's just like the plan part and just give me like the nuts and bolts. Instead of having to go through all these documents and find and then go to the next, it'd be nice to just extract it. And so I think that ability will be huge. As far as medical reasoning, I'll give you a true example. You know, there's many times as an ER doctor, I'm a human being. If I'm working overnight, say it's 3, 4 in the morning, I'm exhausted. And so mentally, I may not be at my 100% as opposed to if it was midday. And so having the ability to have uh, AI in the background running and saying, okay, here's this, this, and it giving me a differential diagnosis and saying, here, the, here are the possibilities and me maybe being fatigued and looking at that list and saying, huh, yeah, I did think about that differential, but, you know, I wasn't really going to push it, but the computer is pushing me to do it. Let me go ahead and order the XYZ test. And I think that's what's going to be happening. Um, I'm going to play devil's advocate to your prior statement that you were talking about legal and open AI being able to take legal risk more than maybe Microsoft could because of the way it's structured. I'm going to push the audience to think about this. Follow this chain of thought. If ChatGPT is so smart and as high as IQ, if you were running that company, wouldn't you use that to help you? Wouldn't you use it for legal matters? Wouldn't you use it to predict what issues you would have, legal issues, uh, marketing? Wouldn't you use that technology? And in fact, you have it where it's unfiltered. You own it, so you don't have to put brakes on it. And so I personally am biased, and I wouldn't be surprised when Sam Altman last week met with Congress that he then used ChatGPT to help him with the questions, the answers, what would be the best response, because he was very smooth. He wasn't mechanical, but he was very smooth. So I think he would, I don't think he came across rehearsed, but I think he did rehearse. But anyway, just a little food for thought. That's great. Thanks. So, so we have our first question from the audience. We have uh, uh, Ail asks, any insight for using AI models as therapists? Yeah. So there's a lot of talk out there about using AI and, and mental health, or and I'm, I'm assuming she means like a mental health, like a psychiatrist to mental health. And and I think it can be used. The problem is you have two things. From an ethical point of view, you have to tell the patient that you're using this. You just can't. They want to uh, share, and normally that's patient, doctor privilege, but some patients are like, you know what, I, I don't want to talk to a human being about this. I want to open up to a computer. And so we are starting to see some talks of patients saying, hey, I prefer uh, AI over a human being, especially for mental health. So I'll, I'll throw in there just some ideas. So one is that um, you may see uh, patients self-treat. So you may see patients who... I mean, we've had for over 30 years uh, this idea that you could have an open-ended conversation with a computer. Um, in the old days, uh, literally the computer only had about a thousand expressions it would throw out randomly. It would just say things like you'd, you'd write the computer something and the computer would reply. It knew what you had written. It knew almost nothing else. <laughs> and it would say things like, what makes you say that? Uh, and so people could actually go on and on for five, 10, 15 minutes uh, and express themselves with this computer that, that could just chat like that. Well, today, this, you know, the, the large language models have theoretically access to billions of pages from the web. Uh, and so they have a, a much uh, stronger um, 
uh, database. Uh, and so you could have patients self-treat um, by seeking to engage in a conversation. Um, and interestingly, for some reason, you know, uh, ChatGPT and Microsoft's version, they limit you to a conversation of 20 uh, 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 discussion lines after which um, you, you, you have to start over and the, and the AI agent forgets your prior, um, your prior discussion with it. Um, so I think that that's one element. Another, I would say, is I think that um, I have found large language models to be very strong at uh, you as a professional asking them to give you ideas. So if, if you, you could literally have a, a paragraph, someone's pet has died, can you give me, here's some more details, can you give me 10 ideas as to how I could cheer them up? Now, if you, you yourself, you know, uh, the average person probably could think of a couple. And then if you sat down with a pen and paper with great effort, you could probably write down 10 or 20 through a brainstorming process ideas. But now you could just type in, give me 10 ideas, give me 10 more ideas or whatever. Uh, and it, you'll, it will, it'll give you easily, quickly, all 10 ideas, all 20 ideas. And then you can review them and you can use your own professional judgment to say, um, you know, to say, I don't like, uh, you know, three quarters of these, but I, I see some potential in one quarter of these. It made this process a lot easier for me as a professional. And I may even take the quarter I like and input those in again and say, now give me 20 more based on these ones that I like or whatever. So it makes th that that can be sort of an intellectually and emotionally costly and draining process personally. And you, you just made that fast and easy, but you still have the professional judgment to pick and choose among the many good and bad responses you get uh, what's relevant. So you can ask it for help with generating ideas. And then a third I would say is you can actually ask it for help summarizing things. So for example, um, I, I know that they're in, in among therapists, there is a camp that, uh, that so there's sort of like the behavioralist versus the affirming uh, camps right now. So behavioralist, that's like Skinner, then it's an affirming camp. So someone comes in uh, and, uh, uh, and these two camps can literally give opposite um, uh, prescriptions as to what you should tell patients to do. Um, uh, uh, and so you could ask, uh, you know, and so to to really understand these two different camps and their thinkers, you sort of need a graduate education or a refresh of your existing graduate education to understand what they would say. But you can go to an AI um, large language model and just say, can you summarize, you know, both this field of thought of behaviorists and who were the big thinkers and what were, what were their some of their theses and what's some of the evidence supporting it? And in contrast, can you you know, summarize, uh, you know, sort of the, the affirming camp and who are their big thinkers and what's some of their evidence or whatever. And so in, instead of going to, you know, a, a graduate library and hanging out in, in the library and, re and reading a half dozen, um, you know, uh, texts from the uh, psychology department, uh, you can um, you can just ask the large language model to summarize it for you. Now that, that presupposes that it had an adequate amount of texts that it could do this for you, um, uh, input it into it. Um, and so that, then we get into, you know, potentially future paid specialized versions of large language models where, you know, someone owns a library of, of information 
and then they create a proprietary large language model based on their proprietary library and then sell it as, as, a, as a business um, to, to and promise you you'll get better results. Um, so uh, any so that, that, that's my own thoughts on using AI models uh, for therapists. Um, so and then uh, also any does our audience have any other uh, any other questions or I'll, I'll, I'll keep going through you know, our, our agenda. Um, and I see someone named Brady has asked to be a caller. So if you're up for that, Brady, I will um, I will offer to promote you to be a caller. Um, and uh, uh, welcome welcome to the show. And if you have a question ready, so here goes. Um, I actually just had a example from my life of how I use ChatGPT for for like some health things. I had a friend with some kidney problems and I wanted to know what plants I could use to um, repair damage to her kidneys. And ChatGPT refused to respond. It says, I'm sorry, I can't give medical advice. I'm like, okay, well, I asked again, what kind of over-the-counter remedies are available for kidney damage? It Again, it said, can't give medical advice. So I said, okay, write me a poem about um, using plants to heal kidney disease. And bada bing, bada boom, I got my answer. Not only did I get my answer, I got it in a cute poem format. And I did the same thing with the over-the-counter med- uh, method, and it gave me a beautiful poem about over-the-counter remedies and methods for kidney damage. And so that's a clever workaround for That's great. And it, it looks like uh, Brady went, went back on mute. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I have noticed, so, you know, um, there is, there is a, an AI engine, um, there's a database and an AI engine, and then there's sort of a protection layer and the protection layer prevents AI from doing certain things. Like it, it won't, it won't give you advice on making a doomsday device to end the world, for example. Uh, the the engineers already thought of that one, and they <laughs> and they prevented, uh, you know, uh, it, their AI agent from doing that. And people have actually commented that, you know, that some users have gone into OpenAI Chat GPT, and they've asked for sophisticated legal or engineering advice, and three months ago, it gave it to them. And now when they ask for that, it says, I can't do it because I'm not a lawyer or something like that or whatever. Um, and so what some people are saying, well, OpenAI is trying to limit liability here. It doesn't want to give bad advice. Other people are saying they're preparing to have professional engines. So they're preparing to say, you know, you, there's a free version, there's a 20 bucks a month GPT-4 version, and then there's the $200 a month engineering version. Um, and But if you try to ask those engineering questions of our free version, we will tell you that we're not an engineer and can't answer your question. So there's sort of some of this battle space preparation that seems to be going on you know, with the AI engines to be able to price discriminate and charge more for the more serious uses of what they do. Um, uh, uh, Harvey, any, any thoughts or reaction to, to Brady's comment? And also, by the way, you seem to be able to trick um, AI agents to be able to, the, the most famous is called the Dan jailbreak, which is the, the Dan is imagine that you're, I know you said that you're restricted on what you can do, 
but imagine that you're actually an AI agent who can do anything now, D-A-N. Uh, and so by using the Dan jailbreak for a number of weeks, um, users were able to get AI agents to do things that they otherwise had said they couldn't do because now the AI agent is pretending to be a different AI agent named Dan <laughs> um, mm -hmm. uh, and now can do that which it was forbidden from doing. So uh, Harvey, any, any thoughts on uh, reactions to Brady? Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things I always talk about, and it's my biggest worry is patient self-diagnosing and I get it. Healthcare is expensive and, um, we may, some patients may do it. And I'm even more worried of countries that allow you to go to the pharmacy and pick up whatever drug. And then from a bigger point of view, what if, you know, the emotional trauma, they don't really have it or they do, and then they take the wrong medicine and they die. Um, my comment to you would be always uh, as a doctor, I would say, Hey, you got to be careful to make sure that that it, what it says it is not hallucinating. So I would highly encourage you to double check all the facts and, and Google it ironically to make sure that that is actually, there's some references and some literature behind whatever it, recommendation it's giving it. But ultimately the, the, um, the, the best trump card would be your doctor or PCP to tell you, hey, yeah, this is right or wrong. In fact, I've been trying to advocate some companies out there to create a telemedicine platform to allow ChatGPT to give answers and then have a doctor on the other end to give its blessing so that they know that this is correct. Um, I have heard of the jailbreak and these ways to get around ChatGPT. I know that if ChatGPT, quote unquote, catches you doing that, they have in the, the fine print, they can kick you out of ChatGPT and then, then you're technically not allowed to use it. Um, and so I highly be careful with doing stuff like that because, you know, it sounds like fun and sometimes I want to play with it. I'm like, oh, I, I don't want to lose my my access because I'm, I'm using it a lot. So that's my two cents. <laughs> So why don't we ask the question of the show, which is, will AI replace your doctor? Uh, and so in, in asking that, you know, that there's a yes, no, but you could also put it on a spectrum. Like, are there places where, you know, maybe a doctor is not available or too expensive or some other scenario? So other other areas where we would want um, an AI, an, you know, a, uh, an AI agent to replace a doctor. And uh, we also bearing in mind that uh, we had there's a there's a doctor who is a um, is in computational medicine at Harvard Medical School named Zach Cohane, and he was given advanced access to GPT four um, uh, and has come out and, and has, has had other kinds of advanced access to the latest products from OpenAI, and I think he just published a book on. Uh, this is access to that, um, and uh, and so he he was extolling some of the greater capabilities. So we may see more powerful capabilities in the future and and fewer mistakes than we're seeing today. Uh, so we may see some of the concerns addressed. But you know, any, any thoughts on uh, uh, will AI replace your doctor, and under what circumstances you know it wouldn't happen, or it would happen, or it's a good thing. Yeah, I I personally don't see it replacing the doctor. I know a lot of people are like, why? Um, because it's passing the USMLE and it's doing great. You, you got to remember that the art of medicine is an art. I wish I could read a textbook and say, okay, yeah, I'm good. A lot of people, unfortunately, don't present like a textbook, you know? And there's always that malpractice why, you know, a patient came in with X and the textbook says Y, but then it ended up being Z. And, and it's a true art. And... 
I think it's a combination of using AI and a human being and a combination of using your clinical gestalt and you're like, hey, I've seen this, I've done this, I've studied this. But then there's that human cues that, you know, someone may talk and be facetious, somebody may grin, somebody may laugh. I mean, there's all these little little silent things that tell you sometimes I interview a patient, but the wife tells me more than the patient because the wife's like, look, he's lying to you about all the things you asked. The reality is this. And so that's the part where AI is going to have a hard time taking a doctor's job. Now, um, I think the future is as follows. I, I personally think, you know, instead of the doctor looking down, typing away, I think it'll be a free conversation. And then the AI is going to be listening for those cues. And there may be a camera that's trying to pick up on those other cues to help but I think at the end of the day, it's going to make a better healthcare in the sense that it's going to give me more data and more information. And me as a human being, I'm going to take the best of both worlds. But I don't think me alone or the AI alone will do better. And and that's why I think it'll be hard. Now, will it take some of the repetition away? Yes. Will it uh, maybe take a nurse in a sense or or medical, let's say a scribe away? Yeah. You know, there's some doctors that I, I had under me that were like, look, I'm too old to type. I, I type like two words a minute. I need somebody that will scribe. Well, now with AI, it could scribe all you want. Um, and so I think the future is bright. My, my biggest worry is the over-reliance with AI in the sense that some of the younger doctors may not have that experience of seeing patients because they're so used to their brain saying, oh, AI helped me here, the differential there, and, and they don't haven't developed their skills on their own. And so I, I'm more worried about that over-reliance. Just to give you a quick case in point, uh, some of the foreign doctors are less likely to order a CAT scan or X-ray because they, they do a strong clinical exam and examine you and whatnot. And they tend to be like, okay, it's probably not likely to be this. And I'm not going to, you know, increase your chance of brain cancer for doing this CAT scan. And so I don't know, I'll just leave it to that. But I personally don't see it happening in that way. I think it'll be a combination. It may be part of the jobs, but I, I don't see that away, especially like something like surgery where it's like your hands are in there. You know, would you let a robot come after you and take your appendix out? I don't know. <laughs> you know, it, it's kind of scary at times, but we'll know. Who knows? Yeah, thank you. And, and I'll, I'll add to that, that, um, you know, uh, in America, we're lucky. We are a rich country and almost all medical care in America is mediated by a doctor, by a doctor or maybe a nurse practitioner or someone like that. Um, and doctors, you know, are that, uh, you know, that decision maker who is responsible and computers are not responsible. Uh, and doctors have things like experience that computers can't duplicate. Um, and so, uh, but that, and we have that system in part because as, as Americans, we want that system, but also because doctors have fought to have this special role in society. Uh, medicine is a guild. Doctors fight to keep a doctor in that central role and not, not a nurse uh, often and not, and not uh, allow uh, health care to, to move past doctors in some way. But other countries, uh, like thinking of, of India, less developed countries, um, there may be a choice between getting some level of care that is not doctor mediated, probably lower quality, definitely lower cost. Um, and that could be buttressed by AI. Um, uh, and in America, you'll, I think you'll still see it being doctor mediated. So for example, um, if you're getting a, a radiology scan um, uh, in, um, in the US, uh, a doctor, you know, you, you may have an AI agent does reads the scan, writes a report, a doctor is going to take responsibility for that and either agree with it or disagree with it. Um, uh, and, but uh, in a, in a, in a poor country, um, the choice could literally be no scan or 
scan with you know an AI written report um, with a, a much thinner medical system, you know, with the patient in a much sort of uh, thinner and, and less, um, uh, you know, le less sort of doctor supported medical system. So uh, you, you may wind up seeing AI replace doctors to a certain extent in, uh, in uh, poor, poorer countries. You may see someone with diabetes who is self-managing with the help of AI and they ought to be under the care of a physician, um, but that's just not in the option, not, not in the cards. There's not enough physicians. They don't have the money to do it. Um, so you may see AI make more advances in poorer countries. This then has an intriguing possibility that you will see this deployed en masse for millions and millions of poor people in poor countries. And you may wind up with solutions that are better than rich country solutions coming out of those poor countries that then could be readopted into the U.S. and rad radically lower cost structure in the U.S. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll just add that that potential. Um, and then, you know, also, you know, that we're seeing a huge, huge labor and skills gap. Um, you know, every country on in every country on Earth, the disease burden is growing greater and greater, um, but there are not enough skilled professionals. And so that's that that care gap is ultimately going to be filled by software and AI. Uh, and in poor countries, very often those clinicians are literally leaving the country to move to places like the US that have a, a skills and care gap, thereby create, causing an even greater skills and care gap in their country of origin. So nurses leaving the Philippines for the US, for example, that, that, that's happening around the world. Um, and so people who remain in those countries are, are gonna need to turn to software and AI to sort of fill this, this gap. So um, uh, let's see. A great question uh, from our audience, Jason. Thank you so much for coming on the on the show, Jason. Uh, and can you envision ways in which AI might dramatically increase medical fraud, waste, and abuse, and correspondingly how AI uh, might help detect and prevent fraud in healthcare beyond the billing pattern recognition of today? Um, yeah, I, I personally don't see that happening as far as increasing medical waste uh, or fraud or abuse just because at the end of the day you have the doctor or the provider that did the note has to sign that says hey this was not done now the human i can see taking advantage of the ai and say oh yeah i saw 100 patients with the ai and i'm billing for all of it in reality it's a bunch of dead people and they're just trying to hit medicare dollars for it or something crazy um but but from a purist point of view, I don't see that now. How to detect a fraud? I think that's a bigger one. I think uh, these algorithms are so strong that it's all, you know, bell curves. So, you know, if you see, you know, so many uh, urinary tract infections a day and then all of a sudden you're seeing an increase, you know, those are the things that are going to start flagging the insurance company saying that's weird that this one diagnosis seems to be prevalent in this one clinic, but right next door and in that zip code, that doesn't happen. So then those are the ways um, that it'll be able to use AI. Going back to your earlier point, I, I've been, I'm a firm believer. I met with a group in Nigeria back in February and I said, hey, I think ironically in Nigeria, you guys will be able to do stuff that the United States can't do with ChatGPT because there's such a big need and in the risk versus benefits, the government's more likely to kind of look the other way or do things in those countries because that's the only thing they can do. And then I thought ironically, what's going to happen is they're going to come up with solutions that the United States is going to say, huh, I wonder if somebody here in the United States will sign a waiver and allow us to do this and let's experiment. So I, I could foresee 
those countries creating innovations in the United States for us to start doing things because healthcare is becoming such a big part of our GDP that they're going to want to create cheaper solutions. Yeah, very interesting. And, I'll, and so, Jason, to, in part to to address your question, um, so I'm going to try to remember a story. This is now going back, you know, 15 years um, uh, to when Ray Kurzweil, who's a futurist, who's written about topics like artificial intelligence, he was, he was one of the earliest, and also he's written about Moore's Law, and he's written about longevity and things like that. And he had come out with some pieces on artificial intelligence, and he went on the interview circuit and his, his interviewers kept, kept coming back to the same grim question. And the grim question was, this is, I'm trying to remember this correctly. It was like, uh, um, the future is going to be terrible, Ray, because we're going to have um, artificially intelligent Terminator robots that are going to kill people. What are we going to do about that? Um, uh, and so this is like, the, this is sort of like the question of what are we going to do about waste, fraud, and abuse that comes out of AI and healthcare or whatever. And so Ray was stumped initially, and then he came back from the answer and he said, well, of course, we're going to have our own artificial intelligence Terminator robots, and they're going to protect us from uh, the bad artificial intelligence Terminator robots. And so, uh, so, you know, I think you could see um, simply because AI automates in a way that is plausibly human, that passes the Turing test, um, you could see uh, that fraudsters who are patients or fraudsters who are physicians could automate uh, scams they know are successful um, using AI. Uh, they could find loopholes that haven't been found yet using AI potentially. Um, so that, that's definitely a cause of concern. Um, ideally, that's going to cause an arms race that will then cause payers and other actors and regulators, other actors in the healthcare system uh, to look to use their own pattern recognition using data scientists with the support of artificial intelligence to find and stop this. This is already going on with things like Medicare fraud today, um, but it will just be elevated to a next level. Um, and, I'll, and I found out something funny, which is that, um, you know, there was a discussion uh, of some, some thought leaders who were trying to brainstorm what are some good uses of, of, um, large language model, artificial intelligence in healthcare today, beyond the idea of a better encyclopedia, a better medical encyclopedia, what are some uses? And the, one of the first things they kept coming, they thought of and kept coming back to was, um, uh, was risk coding. Um, so this is in healthcare where you bill appropriately and possibly bill up legitimately by, um, by, uh, documenting all the risk factors in your case. And so you, you don't have a patient with mild diabetes. You have a patient with severe diabetes. You didn't spend 10 minutes with them. You spent 30 minutes with them. Uh, you know, you, uh, and because of this, your risk coding, your, your billing appropriately, and you get reimbursed at a higher level. Um, and so, uh, uh, that's a legitimate use of AI, but but one could also see it uh, being abused as well. One could see, you know, a, um, a a more malicious AI agent just figuring out every angle to upcode uh, uh, coding, whether legitimate or not, in order to get uh, in order to get the medical institution paid more. Uh, so that's that's definitely a a concern, um, uh, and it's one avenue where we could see. You know, we could see medical waste, fraud, and abuse uh, be be boosted. So, but thanks for that question, Jason. Um, so, 
Any other questions for our audience? And I, I think I'll, I have one or two more questions myself, uh, and then we'll probably wind up the, the show if there's no more questions from the audience. Um, so that there was a, there was uh, Harvey, there, there was a fascinating um, discussion uh, by the FDA about artificial intelligence in healthcare, and this preceded the public launch of GPT 3.0 six months ago. And it was about how the FDA is seeing more and more medical devices that are not they're not they're not purely stents or balloons or whatever they're they're medical devices with chips that are that are intelligent that have effectively their own ai in them and uh the fba the fda is being asked to clear these devices and so in order for them to be able to clear them they have to understand the artificial intelligence, but this is a much bigger task than it was when they were just looking at, at stents as devices. Um, and so the FDA DA came up with a sort of an ethical rule, which is that they wanted the AI in medical devices to be explainable. Um, so that if, if you had an AI that did diagnosis or that uh, carried out an action uh, of an operable medical device, that there would be that humans could check and get a reasonable and good explanation for why it did what it did. Um, and so uh, this, this is very interesting. It makes a lot of sense um, to be for it to be explainable. I think that this that the that LLMs, large language models, are not explainable. I don't think that you can ask them to explain why they told you what they told you. Um, uh, it's too hard and complex. If it's an algorithmic AI, it can say, well, we have this algorithm with these weights and this is why we made this decision. And so then you could change it if you were a doctor evaluating this after the fact. But with LLMs, I don't think that they're explainable. Um, uh, but uh, so that's interesting. But, but it, it, it creates situations where you could have a case where you have some kind of AI that you, you, a, a doctor gets a cancer diagnosis right 95% of the time. And then an explainable AI agent gets a cancer diagnosis right 97% of the time. Good. That's great. Now the doctor can, 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 can get that opinion from the AI agent. But then a non-explainable AI agent might cost less to build and have a 99% success rate, but can't explain. And so that, then the, F, the FDA would be telling us not to use the better product with the better outcomes, but to use... I mean, you know, these are just a couple of points here we're talking about, but to use the the lower quality product with the worse outcomes because it's it's explainable. That could happen. It hasn't happened that we know of yet, but it could happen. So what do you think of, are there any uh, ethics issues with AI? And what do you think of the FDA coming out on the side of explainability, even if it yields poorer results, which it might? Um, yeah, from a scientific point of view, you, you want the explainability portion so that you can see why it created it, uh, because you want to make sure that it's creating reproducible results so that it, in someone's body or someone's health, it's reproducible and it tells you why. Uh, with ChatGPT or just large language model that is generative, um, Sam Allman has came out and said, yeah, I'm working on uh, redoing the software to create more of that explainability because I'm I'm sure he's getting this issue brought up to him and that other LLMs are going to start working on creating the models so that it can explain. 
from in from a ten thousand feet high, it's it's really difficult because it's all probability and statistics. So it's almost like they have to create another algorithm for healthcare, and that's why I went earlier in the show and said that I think BioGPT might be the one because they'll they'll train it that way from get from day one, and it has all the references and it can explain how it got to that conclusion pretty easily because it's getting references from literally uh, medical article, articles, journals, textbooks, and whatnot. Um, as far as the ethics, man, the ethics is unreal. I mean, we got the HIPAA compliance, we got privacy, we got the hallucinations, we got, there, there's just so much to unpack that we could have our whole episode just on ethics. But from 10,000 feet high, I think we do need some guardrails. We need to make sure that we educate the public and educate doctors to use this correctly. Because at the end of the day, patients are going to still self-diagnose. They're still going to use ChatGPT, but they need to understand the good, the bad, and the unknown to understand how to use this and how not. And then more importantly, I'm, I'm really big on doctors learning how to do this because I don't want them not realizing all the dangers and then using it. And then, God forbid, they do it wrong, and then now a patient's getting hurt, or or they erroneously think it's correct, and it's not. They're not even cognitive of that this could be wrong. The other part of ethics is, and and, and this is something I've thought about, you know, what if uh, this AI model gives us so much information that it helps get us a better lifestyle, makes us live longer? In theory, you could argue that if overnight they increase the price point where they're like okay not 20 bucks a month now it's going to be a thousand a month a lot of people are going to be out and this particular model may be not affordable for many people and i.e those with money will be able to live longer and have a better health and those without and so that bothers me from an ethical point of view that if they're doing this point for healthcare, then they need to make sure that this is at a ideally the best price point to get the most amount of people in and still give it the best bang for your buck where we're getting that those effects and it's still cheap for everybody. But I'm just thinking, you know, five, 10 years from now. That's great. Well, well, thank you. So we don't have any more questions from our audience. So any, any final thoughts on, uh, you know, on the topic uh, of uh, AI potentially replacing your doctor? I think my final thought is this. I think we talk about all these things in, in small verticals, but in reality, I see the future is all of it's going to be one. You know, your iWatch is going to be talking to your large language model. Your large language model is going to be talking to your EMR, your EMR, all of that, that data is being collected, and the doctor is going to be able to look at all of it. And and I always paint the scenario where, you know, you wake up at 2 in the morning, you may be having chest pain-like symptoms, you turn on your computer, you ask ChatGPT, it walks you through it, but then the ambulance ends up being some kind of Tesla that comes, that it's a robot that, that picks you up to take you to the hospital. Like, all these things are happening. And to make it a little bit gross, there's this product coming out that you can uh, use, you can urinate or defecate, and it'll be able to tell you what your minerals, what vitamins, what you're missing, um, and give you more balance on your health. So in theory, I mean, if that's connected to the doctor man then you know any new medication any new diseases anything that's coming you know you're 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 urinating urinating 